0: One online blogger writes this, I just want to be happy. Nothing has ever brought me this elusive feeling. How can I be better? After being on several different medications, doing therapy for years, trying CBT, doing mindfulness meditation, exercising frequently, getting girls, hanging out with people I'm close with, I'm miserable. I suspect a lot of people can relate to that. Now, if you're not one of those people, then others want to know your secret. And maybe it's found in the very words that the Apostle Paul is going to to share with us this morning. I mean, here we are, good grief, uh, pretty much a year into this pandemic and the incredible, the substantial impact that this has had on all of our lives. Everyone knows the stresses. We know the the changes that we've had to navigate. Uh, We know the disappointments that we've had to deal with. About the uncertainties, and it's exhausting. It is exhausting. And maybe maybe you hear these words of the Apostle Paul about being joyful, and you say, Good grief. Like, what world does this guy live in? How, that he can make these kinds of statements to us and exhort us to such a disposition. I mean, listen to the text that we're going to begin with this morning, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Whatever happens. My dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. He even says, I never get tired of telling you these things. This is actually the eighth time in this letter that Paul's written to the church in Philippi uh, where where he's exhorted us to joy. I think we better pause this morning and make sure that we understand what this word is about before we go any further because he's going to come back to it when we get to chapter four. I'm gonna read the entire text this morning um, in just a moment, and then there are kind of three questions that we're gonna pose to Paul's writing. The first one, what is Christian joy? This is the outline. If you wanna download it from our website, if you have the church app, you can pull it up there. What is Christian joy? What steals a Christian's joy? And how do I hold on to Christian joy? So what is it? What steals it? And how do I hold on to it? So Lord Jesus, open our eyes. Holy Spirit, be our teacher here this morning. We ask in the name of Jesus. So we're in the New Testament letter to the Philippian church written by the apostle Paul from prison. Written from prison. He's writing it to a church that he helped to start it's The Roman trade city of Philippi um, It was on the northern tip of the Aegean Sea Which is off the Mediterranean So I'm just going to turn around here for a minute If you imagine Turkey here And Greece over there It's sort of the body of water That comes up from the Mediterranean Separating Turkey and Greece The Aegean Sea It's at the north tip It was a, a, a point where a major trade routes converged Including access to the Mediterranean It's a church that he helped start And, and this is a particularly encouraging letter I think most of us would find as we make our way through it. It's filled with affirmation and encouragements. Uh, it's evident that, that Paul loves this church and they love him. And, and then Paul's been bringing very practical instruction. He's encouraging them, exhorting them to stand united together in Jesus as followers of Jesus. Jesus. He's been encouraging them to resist fear of sharing the hope that we have in Jesus, telling people about the great news that Jesus loves them, God loves them, has come near to them to restore humanity in relationship to Father God. In fact, he tells us that Jesus in this has become the one that we as followers of him are to imitate. We're to adopt his attitude or his mindset. Humbly serving one another and our world. And then he says this extraordinary thing in Philippians chapter two. He says, being in very nature God, Jesus took on the very nature of a servant. And through this incredible humility, the Father has exalted him. His greatness has been shown. And he's been exalted to the place that is above every other place. And he's been given the name that is above every other name. And then we read these very sobering words of Paul. He says that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's sobering because of this. All will bow. Willingly or not. Three Sundays from now First Sunday of the historic season of Lent. It's that period of time when the church historically has prepared for the celebration of Easter. We're gonna start a new teaching series. I'm calling it The End of the World as We Know It. And we're gonna look at Jesus' prophetic words in Matthew 24 and 25. And then that's gonna prepare us for Easter Sunday when we're gonna open up 1 Corinthians 15. And we're gonna begin a series examining what comes next. What is our eternal life? hope. All will bow, willingly or unwillingly, and ultimately will recognize who Jesus is. Now that's the stepping stone into this morning's text, because we're here this morning as those who have willingly chosen to follow Jesus. He has moved in our lives in such a way that he's enabling our knee to bow. He's enabled our tongue to confess and we are eternally grateful for that. And this is the starting point for genuine joy. It's the starting point. So what is joy? What what, what steals it? And how do I hold on to Christian joy? Follow along as I read Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. I've been reading out of the New International Version, but this morning I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation, the NLT. I just think it's a little more helpful in this passage for us on first read. So so if you'll follow along, this is the word of the Lord, Philippians 3, starting at verse 1. It will be on the screen as well. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved, for we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could, Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them Worthless, because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage as that, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ, For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, share in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Let all of us who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress we've already made. It's the word of the Lord. Lord, would you help us understand it and apply it in our lives this morning? Amen. Verse one, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things and I do it to safeguard your faith. Now, that's the the language of a parent, right? Any of us who have been parents, I mean, we're used to having to repeat ourselves. You're going to find out. (laughs) we're used to having to repeat ourselves in order to hopefully finally be heard, right? And we say it and then we'll say it again and maybe we say it a little differently the next time. You know, we bring a little different kind of nurture, a little bit of different kind of encouraging ways to the coaching that we bring, to the instruction we bring, to the correction that we bring and we hope and we pray that the faith of our children will be safeguarded. Well, this has been Paul's orientation through this entire letter. It's the language of a parent who wants to safeguard the faith of his readers. Now, now think about that for a moment. If our faith needs to be safeguarded, then what happens when it's not safeguarded? What happens when it's not safeguarded? I mean, so, so we're talking about stuff that is of supreme importance here to our following Jesus effectively in the short term and through the long term. And when Paul uses the imperative voice, uh, makes it a command, he says rejoice in the Lord. Well, well, we're to pay particular attention to that instruction. Okay, so, so what is Christian joy? What is it that Paul's been modeling for us? What is it that he's telling us to embrace here? And, and, and to do that, to understand that we can go back and we can actually look again at some of the language that Paul has used because right from the beginning of his letter he's been modeling what he's, he's encouraging us toward. He's been writing about Christian joy from jail. Okay, isn't it supposed to be the other way around? Aren't we who are free supposed to be the ones encouraging Paul saying, hang in there, Paul. It's going to get better one of these days. You, you're going to get out of there. We trust. We hope We pray. He's the one encouraging us. And so so let's clarify a couple of terms of reference. Um, When I use happy, I'm talking about a short-term response to an immediate situation. Happiness. That made me happy. That doesn't make me happy. A short-term response to an immediate situation. Now that's an oversimplification of the way the word happy gets used in the Bible. I'll just declare that up front. Um, sometimes happy and blessed uh, are, are, are synonymous terms. Blessed are you when men revile you and speak all manner of evil against you. Okay, the Beatitudes, uh, some of your translations. We we'll use the word happy in there. So it's an oversimplification, but but I'm, I'm declaring that up front. For, for the purposes of this morning, happy, we're talking about a short-term response to an immediate situation as, as juxtaposed to joy, which which is a deep-rooted long-lasting state of being. So, so Christian joy is what Paul's been modeling. It's what he's talking about here. What is this deep-rooted, long-lasting state of being that he's describing for us in the letter? Well, let's, let's kind of look at what he said. Chapter 1, verse 4, he prays with joy. Okay, you know what prayer is, right? He's, he's speaking to God the Father, He's interceding for the churches that are under his care. He prays with joy. Chapter 1, verse 18, he rejoices that Christ is proclaimed. Chapter 1, verse 25, he's glad that he's not going to die yet because it's going to result in the Philippians' joy in their faith. Chapter 2, verse 2, Paul asks the Philippians to complete his joy by being like minded with him, with one another, with God himself. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 17, that he's being poured out like a drink offering, and they should rejoice with him because of this. Like his life is being effective in the work that he's being called to, and this ought to, needs to bring joy. Just last Sunday, we talked about Timothy and Epaphroditus, and in chapter 2, verse 28, he says he's sending Epaphroditus back to the Philippian church, and that that's going to result in their rejoicing in this. So, so joy has something to do with one another and our re- response to one another, our being together with one another. Chapter three verse one. Or chapter two verse 29, he says, "They are to receive him with joy. There's to be celebration in this reunion. Waiting, I can't wait until to, we're together again, like in person. Like that is going to be reason for celebration and joy. Um, Chapter 3, verse 1, he tells the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. Okay, so this is the first time that he's kind of added that in the Lord peace. So we want to pay attention to that, it's important. And Paul's not done yet. We're going to come back to the subject of joy in chapter 4 a couple of Sundays from now. So, so Paul has not been modeling circumstantial happiness here. I mean, he's in a Roman prison, life has been difficult. He's been cut off from what he thought was his mission, his life purpose to meet people, start churches, preach about Jesus, uh, encourage people to follow Jesus faithfully. Two or three years of imprisonment seem likely to, to have preceded the writing of this letter. He's been restricted now so that his entire audience seems to be Roman guards who are standing over him and whoever shows up to visit him. Oh yeah, and there are those letters that he's been writing. Okay, so lemonade out of lemons. I'll write some letters to them. I can do that. And it's not always clear exactly how conscious he was that what he was writing was actually the word of God to those churches. At least some of the time we know he was aware of this. And here we are, 2,000 years later and hundreds of millions of people found encouragement and instruction because Paul was in jail. Because he was willing to, uh, to endure the rigors of Roman incarceration and, and, and then make the best of it. I'm going to write some letters. I'm going to write to the church in Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, the church in Ephesus. I'm going to write some letters And in these things, we're seeing that Paul's joy is not circumstantial happiness. It's transcendent joy. It transcends the circumstances. It's above, it's beyond immediate circumstances. What was Whether it felt like he was winning or felt like he was losing, his joy was attached to something far greater than the immediate. His joy came it was found in prayer, chapter 1, verse 4. His joy was in seeing the good news about Jesus shared broadly. It was, his joy was in the knowledge that we have a mission and the purpose ahead of us is meaningful and part of it is just being together. It's encouraging one another. It's exhorting one another to continue following Jesus effectively. This is, the, this is where Paul's joy is being anchored. He's modeling this. He says things like, find your joy in your agreement together with one another, as followers of Jesus, lean into Jesus as your highest common denominator. Sort out the other stuff. Sort it out, but lean into Jesus. Now, now, now that's, that's just that's just verse one. Don't worry, we will not spend that much time on all the other verses. Uh, uh, but I'm convinced that verse two of Philippians chapter three is entirely intentional on the part of Paul, and it's intentionally jarring. It's jarring because he wants to address what steals a Christian's joy. Here's what he writes, verse two. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Now Paul's not saying this is the only thing that's gonna steal your joy, but he's saying this is real. This is real, and this is one of those things that will definitely steal your joy. It's a fundamental threat to your joy. But we're gonna call it the Jesus plus system of trying to be right with God. The Jesus plus system. And and, and here's part of the reason why uh, this is such jarring language. If you, you and I were able to read the Greek fluently, we'd like, holy smokes, those are strong words, that's strong language, Paul. And he's using strong language because this is the stuff that will, will undo your faith. It, it will trip you up in your walking after Jesus. It, it'll result in you not, potentially, you not crossing the finish line and receiving the prize that we just read about in verse 15 of chapter 3. And Paul's addri- here's, here's what Paul is addressing. This is the question. Do followers Of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, need to become Jewish? Do followers of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, need to become Jewish? This was a significant question for the early church. The first few decades that the church existed, they wrestled with this. Some of the the first converts, the first followers of Jesus were Jews, they were of the Hebrew people. And Jewish teachers who had come to recognize that Jesus was the guy, like he's who they'd been waiting for, he was Messiah, he was Savior, he was heir to the throne of King David and would sit on that throne through all eternity, they completely expected it was all about Israel. King David was Israel's king, sit on the throne of Israel, surely this is what this is about. And they believed that this was about restoring Israel as a nation. Make Israel great again. Took them time. They were biding their time. Uh, Sorry. For them to realize it was about much more than just them. This was about so much more than just Israel. The nation of Israel was a stepping stone in in God's program towards the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus spoke about this many times as we read through the Gospels. Jesus also clarified, he said, look, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Matthew 5, 17. Jesus said that that era of history was being completed in him, and God was now building on that. The kingdom of God would no longer be constrained by national borders or geography, The kingdom of God would transcend all of that and the kingdom of God was now that which Jesus would reign in and through the hearts and lives of people like you and me. No longer about geographical borders but rather about a citizenship in a heavenly kingdom. And through the hearts of everyone who would turn to Jesus and be saved. So this is what Paul's talking about when we get to verse three. He says, look, for for we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised or or are the part of the circumcision, part of the the true Israel. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. So he's saying, look, we, we who rely on Jesus to save us have become the new people of God. The new people of God. So the circumcision that's being described it was part of the ritual that identified Jewish people, specifically Jewish men. But Jesus fulfilled all of that so that the ritual became unnecessary. It would be an add-on. And those Judaizers is what they were being described as. It's a language that we use. Those who were trying to restrict the kingdom of God to the nation of Israel... We're adding something. It was Jesus plus. They were adding, trying to add something to the work that Jesus had, had done. How is that possible, right? Like, isn't it absurd if you read chapter two and you recognize that he's been exalted to the highest place? He's been given the name above every name. How do you add to that? It's absurdity to think that somehow we could add to it. Salvation is available through Jesus and Jesus only. Anyone who tells you something else is wrong. They're working on the Jesus plus system. Now, Christian cults will do this. Uh, They they may revere Jesus in some way, shape, or form, usually with some errors in their thinking, but then they will add on an additional set of writings that need to be adhered to. Uh, they add to the work of Jesus moral behavior Or, or, or works, additional works uh, In order for you to be made right with God These are the things you need do. Some have even added baptism And said look it's belief in Jesus Turning to Jesus plus baptism In order for you to be saved And it's wrong Th- This is why Paul is using such harsh language here In, in order to arrest uh, us in the reading through Because this is dangerous stuff The Judaizers, Paul actually calls them dogs here, not because he doesn't like fluffy little animals, but because he's turning language around. The Jews, sometimes in sin, would refer to the Gentiles as dogs, Gentile dogs. And Paul's turning the tables on these Jewish teachers who are trying to add to the work of Jesus And he's pointing to the fact that the Hebrew scriptures all pointed to Jesus. And now that Jesus has come and fulfilled the law and the prophets, the kingdom of God is being built on that foundation. And salvation is found in the name of Jesus only, in the authority of Jesus only. And any Jesus plus system of thinking or religious practice is false and it will threaten to undo your faith. And Paul says, look, rejoice in the Lord." It is Jesus and Jesus only who can safeguard your faith. So so that is, what is Christian joy? That's the beginnings at least of what steals a Christian's joy. We'll look at that question again in chapter four. But how do I hold on to Christian joy? Well, we begin by trying to wrap our minds around this and that'll take us a lifetime to do it. How incredibly gracious This gift of reconciliation to the Father through the work of the Son is extraordinarily gracious. Every Jesus plus way of thinking is an incredibly heavy and arduous system. No one can hold up under its pressure. No one can perform that well, that consistently. It's the do more way to be made right with God and it has never worked, it won't work now uh, and so the futility of it, the very futility of it is exhausting. Now what's worse is there's an insidious form of this same thing that shows up in at least almost every one of our lives, if not all of our lives. And it's the perform for Jesus way of thinking. It is dangerous, friends. Like if I want Jesus' approval, I must work hard and behave rightly because I need to perform for Jesus. And if I don't, I make him sad. Now, hard work is good stuff, friends, and you can find joy in it. And living a godly life, observing godly morality, it will bring you success in life. That's how God has designed this world to work. It will bring you success in life. It won't bring you salvation. You can never perform your way into pleasing God. I mean, think about it, right? God, who now sees you through the highly exalted one, Jesus, and as far as your sin is concerned, when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, Jesus took it all. He took your sin, he took the guilt, he took the shame, and he took it to himself. And he gave you his perfect record. And now, Jesus, God, Father, God sees you through the work of the Son, and all he can see is His perfection. How do you add to that? It's impossible. Your moral performance simply cannot add to the perfection of Jesus. And so, what do you do? Well, now I start living differently, not because it saves me, but because it's the only reasonable response. My life becomes an act of worship to him. Gratitude, thankfulness to him. God, you're so good. Man, you're amazing. I long that my world would know the freedom of this. There's no need to perform. There's no need to do a little tap dance in order to hopefully catch Jesus' favorable attention. Jesus has taken care of it all. And he doesn't love you. Hear me on this. He doesn't love you any more or any less when you screw up. His grace is sufficient. He invites you to come in confession, and repentance again. He doesn't love you any more or less because you're amazing or when you blow it. Soak in that for a moment. Like it's freeing. Like, Does the thought of that not begin to stir joy in your heart? The Jesus plus plan is another way of talking about self-justification or self-righteousness. Trying to justify yourself, trying to make yourself right before God. It it, it never has worked, won't work now, but justification that comes through Jesus by faith is freeing. Let him become free. Your righteousness. This is exciting. This is the kind of joy that we can hold on to for the long term. The long journey. Listen to what Paul says again. He's modeling this for us. Chapter 3, verse 9. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Verse 10. I wanna know Christ, of course, and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I wanna suffer with him, share in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Now hear this, I can sound like Jesus plus, Jesus plus experience, or Jesus plus suffering, or Jesus plus attaining the resurrection. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about growing into what we've been given. Growing into what we have received through Christ. We can share in these things. So, so it's a little bit like maybe when you were a kid, um, mom bought you a coat that was one or two sizes too big. You know, or, or, or maybe dad bought you a pair of shoes that were one or two sizes too big because you will grow into it, right? You've been given, you've been given an inheritance that's much greater, much larger than you or I. And we're being invited to grow into that experience of who God is. but Jesus, would you stir in us here in these final couple of moments together a fresh encounter with your truth Friends, do you remember, if you've been around long, do you remember the language that gets used around baptism? What is it that takes place, that baptism represents, that it it symbolizes? Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Here's, Here's the point. How is it possible that I can live into this new reality? It's because you've already died. You you died when you turned to Jesus and confessed him. And and when baptism shows that we have been raised to new life in Christ, you're already living your resurrected self. You've stepped into it. Now it's, it's already and it's not yet. There is more yet to come, but there's a spiritual reality that is true of you now. Paul says that you are now seated with Christ in heavenly realms. So, so this is what Paul's inviting us to hold on to. This is the Christian, this is at the heart of the Christian joy. Man, if we get a hold of these biblical truths, as we reflect on them, as we chew on them, as we invite the Holy Spirit to teach us, to equip us, to help us to better understand, we're going to begin to live in a new way because as we pray, we encounter joy. As we we encourage one another, we encounter joy. As we meet together, we encounter joy. As we we see the gospel, the good news about Jesus, stirring in new people's lives, we encounter joy. Joy. It's one of the reasons why over the last couple of years we've been coming back to the Lord's table each week. Because by keeping Jesus front and center, by making sure that he is present and what he's done every week, it's it's an invitation to encounter joy, the joy, the Christian joy, the joy that is in Christ again through this act of remembering what he's done. Again and again we come. What did Jesus do for us? Jesus being in very nature God the Father.